free speech, the robust exchange of ideas is absolutely essential to discovering the truth together. The structure of our government and the structure of our laws is only as good as the values and practices that we bring to them in, in, in implementing them and fulfilling them. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. Hi, and welcome to Reality Check. I'm Jeannie Allen. It is January 2021, and it's been a tumultuous year, not just 21, but going way back into famous now 2020, and more so really in recent days. But we have survived so far, and we've endured. We've just watched the 59th inauguration of the 46th president of the United States, which means what the founders planned for works, or doesn't, some people are asking. First, let me go local. It's devastating what's been done to what I consider now my home city. Uh, I was just in Washington, D.C. a little while ago. It looks like a war zone, and it's gotten progressively worse since the spring, culminating in the attacks on January 6th. Why? And what does the Constitution say about how we got here, and what do we, where do we go from here? Joining me today to discuss this is Jeffrey Saginga, the executive director of the Ashbrook Center, located at Ashland University in Ohio. The center is dedicated to instilling in students, teachers, and just plain citizens a better understanding of American constitutional self-government, what America is, and the unique position she holds in history. We've had Jeff on a lot of our programs, and he has helped bring to light so many things um, that I just relish the fact he's here. So thanks for joining me today, Jeff. Thanks for having me very much, Jeannie. I also have, and so happy to join us, is Bob Woodson, a dear, dear friend who actually I will credit with helping uh, teach me about grassroots activity in Washington, D.C. He's often referred to as the godfather of the neighborhood empowerment movement, having founded the National Center for Neighborhood Enterprise in 1981, focusing much of his time not only in violence-free zones and troubled schools and neighborhoods throughout the country, but ensuring that parents, children, and citizens are empowered to govern their own lives. He's also was an old friend of uh, the late Jack Kemp. And Bob, I'm so happy you could join us as well today. Pleased to be here. So let's jump into the subject at hand. Um, I don't know if you have any opening thoughts about kind of what I threw out there, but I remember looking on Facebook uh, a couple of days after January 6th and someone said, well, James Madison, take a bow. Jeff, what do you what do you think was meant by that? And and so it, does that mean things are working? Well, that's a great question. I mean, if, if there ever has been a stress test in recent times of the Constitution, it's certainly we've seen it uh, in these last weeks. But uh, it, it reminds me of a passage you mentioned, James Madison from Federalist 49, where one of the very few times when Madison criticizes his friend Thomas Jefferson and Madison says to Jefferson, hey, look, in this Federalist paper, we got to make sure we, we can't have too much frequent revolution and change of our Constitution, because the Constitution is not just a, a document written on paper, but it has to live in the hearts and minds of the people. 
if it's going to be sustained over time. He talks about having the American people having a reverence for the Constitution. And it's really that reverence that is the, the critical uh, aspect of, of what we've seen lately. If we don't have reverence for our Constitution, constitutionalism, constitutional norms, the rule of law won't prevail. But I think we see that the vast majority of Americans still do have reverence for our Constitution. Yeah, I think Samuel Adams certainly said that um, the rule of law is, is primary, but so is the culture that democracy and capitalism are but empty vessels into which we pour our values as a nation. And so I think the structure of our government and the structure of our laws is only as good as the values and practices that we bring to them in, in, in implementing them and fulfilling them. And, and, and that's where the breakdown is today. It's a, we have a major cultural crisis um, uh, but I, I think that that element of it, it cannot get lost. You know, it's interesting. I've been talking to friends who kind of cover all sorts of ideologies and beliefs. And number one, we all share that uh, the, the violence, the attacks, obviously, on January 6th were awful, um, untenable, um, unprecedented and really hurtful. Um, that much of what happened over the summer, there's debate about how much that contributed to this kind of uprising, and that's not to justify it. Other friends say um, all of what was happening in the summer was the cause, in fact, of somebody in the presidency who was not civil, who didn't play nice, and frankly, who kind of elicited this. But let's say they're both right. Let's say all of the things were feeding into it. Uh, uh, someone people call a tyrant in, pre in the presidency, um, people being let to go on the streets to destroy businesses. What, are, what does the constitution actually do for us coming out of this? Where do we go from here? Let, let me just echo what Bob said. Um, we can't have, uh, John Adams said, our constitution is made for a moral people. And it will only survive if the people have the right habits and the right knowledge. Character matters. It's fundamental. In a, if we're going to be able to govern ourselves, and the founders called this country an experiment in self-government, experiments can succeed or experiments can fail. We always have to remember that. It's very easy to think, looking back now, oh, of course, America was inevitably going to be successful. We, we can never adopt that view. We always have to understand that it takes character in the people, and that character has to be consistently cultivated in each new generation. And that's the real challenge, and I think the civic crisis that we face, that's underlying the events that we see on the media. Those are not the crisis. Those are the effects of the crisis. And we really have to get to this deeper crisis of the habits and knowledge necessary to sustain a, a constitutional republic as we are. Yeah, Sam Adams, yeah, talked about the cultivation of virtue. If we lose our virtue, then we'll be ready to surrender to forces either within or without, from without or within. And uh, I think those who are trying to destroy this republic, and there are people, I think, they, are, they have weaponized race 
and, and you, you see this with, with the murders of uh, George Floyd and others like that. They, they uh, assume that they are, are assisting, uh, um, protecting black social justice they're using. But they soon migrated from uh, protecting the rights of uh, uh, securing justice for blacks. They migrated from that to burning Bibles in Portland, to desecrating the Christian cross, uh, tearing down the statues of Frederick Douglass. And so they, they have abandoned any pretense of, of trying to really uh, secure justice for blacks, but using it. And that's the, that, that's the point where uh, that the country, and unfortunately the president and, and others on the right, on the left rather, are feeding that, that frenzy. We have to understand there's no single black community. There's no group that can be defined by their race. Anytime you generalize about a group of people and then try to uh, demand uh, uh, recompense for them, it always helps the, the elites. It always helps the elites. And that's one of the reasons I left the civil rights movement because I realized that many who are suffered and sacrificed didn't benefit from the change. Because Dr. King said, what good does it do to, to live in the neighborhood of your choice or eat in a restaurant if you don't have the means to exercise that right? And so, uh, so there is a, a huge bifurcation in the black community, has been for decades. The Pew research says that 67% of blacks do not believe America, their, their primary barrier in America is racial. And, you know, I can see where um, I so appreciate your candor and your honesty. Um, I can see where that would be a great discussion for students and people to have. Jeff, do you feel like we're getting away from where we're going to be able to have an open discussion? Like what Bob just put out there will be controversial to a lot of people listening, lots of people across America. But can we even have that discussion without somebody calling someone a name? And again, how, what do we draw from our founders about this kind of constriction of speech that we're feeling these days? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we can have that kind of discussion. We have to have the kind of discussion that Bob is talking about. Um, you're right, though, that unfortunately in too many institutions, and again, I, I want to echo what Bob says, too many institutions, especially elite institutions, um, so-called elite institutions, universities and the rest, where um, that kind of robust discussion should be taking place. That's the place where there should be free inquiry, free discussion, free thought, free speech, free debate, in order to get at the truth and make progress. That, that's how progress has happened. Um, a great civil rights leader, as I know Bob would know, one time was asked, what do you, to what do you credit some of the successes of the civil rights movement, he said, God and the first amendment. Hmm. Um, that is, we, we have to hold on to that notion of free speech, of course, responsible speech, meaning respectful civil discourse, but free speech, the robust exchange of ideas is absolutely essential to discovering the truth together. Occasionally it can be uncomfortable. We know that, right? But it, the ideas need to be countered with ideas, not shouting down, not canceling, and right. definitely not violence. 
And it's interesting, and that's where I was going to um, kind of go with this conversation to ask you, because when you were talking both about character before and instilling that in someone, you know, Edie Hirsch talks about how do you create a citizen? You can't improve what you don't love, right? And you can't love what you don't know. Another kind of McCullough talks about that. So if it comes down to education, at least for our young people, we have to have this kind of open environment. But what do you think the prospects are for having that now? How do we get to that point? And, and what do we have to do about the adults, right? I remember my daughter being in college a few years ago and saying, you know, I mean, I remember being in college, we'd fight all the time with people. We'd argue, we'd, and it was all civil. And she said she raised an issue in her class and someone just stood up and said, no way. And there was nothing else. And they just looked at her like that was a stupid idea. And I thought, have we also lost the opportunity to debate? Well, my hope and my prayer is that white America will experience race fatigue. They will tire of being called a racist for everything by saying all lives matter, by saying a colorblind society, we should be judged by the content of our character. I think we have to uh, have the courage to speak truth. As someone said, um, we must protect faith-based, I, I mean, fact-based truths, otherwise lies will become normal. But someone who's, someone who's critical of that point of view, Bob, might say that you sound like you're endorsing white supremacy. And I'm saying that the biggest barrier facing Black America is not bigotry, it's moral treason by those who have been elected to protect them and betray that trust. I asked the question, see, race is being used, really. Uh, I asked this question in a debate I had recently, that if racism were our, our biggest problem, then explain to me why Blacks are, 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 um, are losing are failing in systems run by their own people for the past 10, uh, 50 years. Like? Like in education. It between, and, and this is between 1920 and 1940, the education gap between whites and blacks in the South was three years. It was eighth grade for whites, fifth grade for blacks. Because of the Rosen, 5,000 Rosenwald schools established by Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald, the CEO of Sears, um, that, race, that education gap in just 20 years closed to within six months. Hmm. And so if, and that's, and that's when uh, blacks were attending schools where the, the enrollment was, was twice that of white schools, they had half the budgets, <laughs> but they were equipped with self-determination. And so I said, if we were able to close the gap during segregation, why can't we close the education gap today in those major urban areas where the school systems have been run by black professionals for the past 50 years? And you see, to avoid having to address these very troubling questions, you can point to race, something external. And then that deflects attention away from the real question of why blacks are failing. Not all blacks are failing. Mm -hmm. There are 3.4 million uh, uh, Africans, uh, Caribbean uh, descendants of Caribbean, their incomes are, are higher than whites. Mm -hmm. Family first, they, they exceed in almost every category the performance of white. If racism were the, the culprit, 
then why are they achieving in this environment and others are not? See, these are we got to have a, a fact-based discussion. And Jeff, what do you what, what's your thought about that? How do how do we have that discussion again in the context of our it's such a complexity? It's so difficult for someone like people like us who are white to have that discussion. I there's so little I even know about our nation. I'm learning every day. I feel like I could be a student for the rest of my life and still not do it, even if I was doing it every day. So how do we, again, connect the dots to even engage? Where does it start? What are you seeing as some of the best approaches to educating our nation? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question, Jeannie. Um, I, I think we need to go back to the original sources themselves and realize that there have been debates in American history from the founding all the way till now. That debate is not a new thing and that there have been critical debates throughout American history, but you've got to go back to the debates themselves, the arguments themselves. You know, you can't have students, you can't have folks um, love and defend a republic if they don't know what a republic is. You, you, can't have, you can't have citizens and students and teachers who, uh, love freedom and want to see people exercise the kind of robust freedom that Bob is talking about um, if they don't know what freedom is, if they don't have an understanding of our founding principles and the history that flows from those founding principles. And unfortunately, way too many students are in classrooms and teachers themselves forced to use textbooks that are boring or biased or sometimes both and that really cover over the exciting discussion that you can have in a classroom. And I've seen it happen many times when you just go back to those original sources like the Declaration of Independence, like the Constitution, like so many other things, speeches of Lincoln, speeches of Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., you name it, to go back to those. That's where I think we can start to actually make headway because those sources are not partisan. They're not owned by Democrats. They're not owned by Republicans. They're just an American inheritance. And I think we need to go back to those in our classrooms across the country. And so many of the letters that have been uh, brought to light, obviously they started somewhere, but now they're picked up by the historians that are writing books, the Doris Kearns Goodwins, the David McCullers are fascinating. Like diaries and letters from husbands to wives as they cross through into, you know, the Northwest Territory. Um, we are hearing now that there is some new data on Plymouth Plantation and what really happened and when the, you know, actual Thanksgiving happened. And it turns out all of the Native American tribes in the area were there um, living and talking civilly, not just having dinner together one night. And we're going to hear more about that apparently from the Plymouth Foundation in the coming months. So I think so right about the original source documents. Bob, talk to me about, you know, you've worked in many cities across the country. You're in Washington, D.C. Um, what's a hopeful sign maybe or a way we can think about bringing those source materials? I mean, teachers and students and families must be hungry for, as Jeff said, they don't want to keep reading Pablum and stuff that's not even interesting. What can we do to make sure our students are in front of those, those books? Well, one of the things that we did, I think, uh, and, and, and I must say in response to 1619 with the New York Times publishing these essays that decry America as being racist uh, from its in its core 
and all white people are vil villains to be punished and black people are victims to be compensated and pitied. <laughs> uh, what we did was since they were using uh, blacks as a messenger, we think that the counter messenger should be black as well. So we're like the civil rights coalition, black led, but participating with everybody. But we have um, issued a, a series of essays that are now enshrined in a book where we're offering not a counter argument, but an aspirational, inspirational alternative. We were talking about what are the realities that when whites were at their worst, blacks were at their best. There were some blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires. When we were denied access to schools and universities, we built our own. We built our own railroad, our own hotels, medical schools. Um, and so it is important for all people to know about the resilience that we are the only nation on the face of the earth that ever had an emancipation proclamation. We're the only nation that fought a war to end slavery. So it's important uh, not to, for us to deny the birth defect of slavery, but it is a birth defect. And no one should be judged by the worst of what we were, either as a, a people or as a nation. That America is about second chances, it's about redemption. And so we tell a lot of redemption stories. Uh, and uh, we had a press conference three weeks ago. We had over 5,000 downloads for the first three lessons that we released. We're getting calls every day from school board members, from superintendents, from parents, wanting information that is more accurate and, and aspirational uh, and truthful. We're telling the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. But there's a desperate need for that kind of content. And we, we at the Woodson Center, we're supplying it. I'm, I'm delighted and we'll make sure it's out there. It reminds me a little bit um, uh, not to at all make a comparison between this and, as you say, the birth defect of slavery. But it reminds me as a Italian-American about the debate over Columbus. And I have colleagues who uh, have been uncovering original source material that conflicts what, what the narrative has become um, about Columbus's, you know, apparent, you know, transgressions that, you know, getting it out there is just a matter of information. Again, it's not that people didn't do bad things. It's not that there wasn't, there weren't issues. It's what else did they do? How do we gauge that in terms of today? And so, and so Jeff, the you know, sort of the point of history and learning history, and I would love you to talk a little bit about what you guys have also available, uh, is to learn from it. So, so how do we demand that as a nation, we learn from history? Is it too much to demand that maybe it become a requirement for all of our citizens again? Well, let, I'd like to start in schools. <laughs> Only 25 states, for example, require so high school students to take a US history class that includes history of our founding. That's a really remarkable fact. I mean, when we trace so much as Bob says in his wonderful 1776 Unites project, if we trace so much of who we are as a people back to that year, how can we not have our youngest citizens studying those things? Um, one of my very favorite Americans of all time is a 19th century, the great 19th century abolitionist, uh, Frederick Douglass. And, and addressing the issue on the question of, of race. And 
just to have students go back and read Frederick Douglass's amazing life story and to understand him as he understood himself. And he has this wonderful quote and, and when asked about the question of race problem. And he says, the only problem is whether the American people have loyalty enough, honor enough, patriotism enough to live up to their own constitution. That's a really remarkable thing. He sees the, the, that America is really a story of freedom. But you know, you can't, you gotta get at that story by the layers of reading these original documents. Uh, there's material out there. There are some states that are doing a good job with this. There are some schools that are doing a good job with this. We run into teachers at Ashbrook all the time when we run our teacher programs who love these founding documents, who love to read people like Frederick Douglass, who by the way, Bob mentioned in the 1619 project is conveniently left out of that project. Wow. Um, the girl they mentioned Dr. King. They don't mention Dr. King very much either. No, they don't, because both those great men look back to the founding and say there are resources, moral resources inside America to extend freedom and opportunity to everyone. The other thing, a small point, but they also do not identify the Democratic Party with racism. They just refer to Dixiecrats. And there are histories, right? And, and lots of people in both parties who have that back. I also want to make a distinction, though, also for our listeners. The 1776 Unites, which is the private project of the Woodson Center, is not the 1776 Commission. Right. No, no relationship. And put out. I've yet to read that report. I know it's controversial, but I don't know. It, to me, it, it really is. It doesn't even matter anymore. What matters is exactly what you guys are saying. Um, let's make decisions based on source material. And and it would not um, uh, probably be a controversial thing to say. You also learn to read better. You learn more vocabulary. Not only do so few of our students and adults know history and, and basic facts and civics, but our literacy rates, our ability to consume thick, you know, tones of paragraphs that help us understand is, is lacking, right? And so even bringing that back. So so what can people do? They can they can download the publications at 1776 Unites. They can make sure that their schools begin to demand and their states begin to demand. Um, history is out there um, and you know or, or the programs and the kids are taught, right? And teachers are guided. They can take advantage of fellowships at Ashbrook. How about just in sort of parting, gentlemen, the normal everyday individual, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, who's having a conversation with their neighbor, who feels so unable because they don't want to upset, they don't want to fight, maybe they have prejudices that the person they're looking at or talking to, either their party, their race or whatever. Are there any suggestions you can make about how we help our fellow man and woman have a civil conversation, even if it ends in disagreement? I believe that the best way that people can come together is serve someone in need and partner with someone in doing something for someone else in need. It's kind of like the Cajun Navy is a perfect model for what I think the Cajun Navy are the boaters, you know, and that, that whenever there's a crisis, a, a flood or a hurricane, these Cajuns who are fishermen, 
take their boats and go rescue people. They, they are the first responders, not FEMA. And that movement is growing that, and because that, that's America spontaneously reaching out to help another uh, American. And you see this in our, in our hurricanes, thousands of people uh, travel great distances to walk up three flights of steps to take water and food to a family that is isolated. I just think we should seek out opportunities to serve together. And in the process, the byproduct will be um, coming together. So well said. Jeff, closing. Oh, that's wonderful. I, you know, I, someone once said, we, perhaps we ought to do unto others as we would want done unto us. And that's a great rule, um, not just for our own personal lives, but for our lives as citizens. And I would tell people to remember, um, America started in conversation. We started with words in the Declaration of Independence. And those words still uh, live on today. You know, we uh, just one quick story. We had a teacher, an Ashbrook teacher down in Florida who had a kid, he asked his students to start, they were gonna start by reading the Declaration of Independence in class. He asked, he called on a young man to, to read the a passage at the beginning. The young man said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Teacher said, I'm sorry, I asked you to do it. You have to do it. And he said, you don't understand. I can't do it. I don't know how to read. This was in 11th grade. He had a third grade reading level that looked like a hopeless situation. The teacher said, meet me after class every day. We're going to go through this. By the end of that, that young man knew not only could read the Declaration of Independence, he knew it by heart and could teach his fellow students how to do that. That's what's possible if we reach out in the way that Bob is saying to each other. And if we really believe, as Thomas Jefferson said, that almighty God hath created the mind free, that our minds can really pursue the truth and come together and understand it together through that kind of conversation. It's been a part of the American story from the very beginning. We can't lose hope and faith in that. Extraordinary. I am so grateful that you gentlemen have joined me for this important conversation. And I love the uh, commentary that America started in conversation. We should continue the conversations. We shouldn't be afraid to be offended or um, risk offending as long as we learn from it and, and gain and move on. My guests today on Reality Check have been Bob Woodson, founder of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise and the Woodson Center, whose 1776 Unites is trying to bring original source material to the table in the conversation and help us advance uh, truly better unity across the country. And Jeff Sakanga, the executive director of the Ashbrook Center in Ashland University, Ohio. Information on how to reach them will be available on our website at reform.com. Thank you for joining me on this edition of Reality Check. Uh, join me next time for more exciting guests. And don't forget, uh, if we can't do it here in America, we can't do it anywhere. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.